Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jennifer Arlen, Norma Z. Page Professor of Law and Director of the Program on Corporate Compliance and Enforcement at New York University School of Law. We'll be discussing her recent paper, The Potential Promise and Perils of Introducing Deferred Prosecution Agreements Outside the U.S. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Jennifer, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. So the topic of your paper is the extension of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement to the United Kingdom and France. Maybe to set up that conversation a little bit, could you discuss some of the policy and some of the law enforcement purposes behind the use of Deferred Prosecution Agreements or DPAs or non-prosecution agreements, NPAs, in the United States and why this country has sort of been number one or maybe even a success story in, in using these types of agreements in corporate law enforcement? So the U.S. is at the forefront of bringing cases against large publicly held firms for corporate crimes. And one of the reasons it's so successful is that it implemented a policy of using negotiated settlements, but also a particular form of negotiated settlement, which is deferred prosecution agreements and their cousin non-prosecution agreements, which is where the company is able to settle the case with the government, pays a fine often, and may have to implement reforms, but isn't formally convicted. And the reason this is important is that in many situations, if a company is convicted of a felony, it could be excluded from doing business with the U.S. government, it could be delicensed depending on the industry. It could be blocked from doing business overseas. So companies care desperately about not getting a conviction. And the U.S. government has used its ability to offer this alternative form of settlement as a way of giving companies an incentive to help prosecutors out. So companies in the U.S., are better able than prosecutors to detect misconduct and also to investigate. So they just know more about what's going on inside the firm and what their employees are up to than the prosecutors do. And the prosecutors say, if you self-report or if you fully cooperate by handing us evidence of all the bad things you did, or at least many of them, and who was involved, then we will let you settle through one of these preferred forms of settlement which protect you from being debarred or delicensed, but you'll still have to pay some sort of fine. And this has been very effective at getting companies to cooperate and in turn is very effective at helping prosecutors do cases. You note that other countries are moving to catch up, and your focus in this paper is on the example of what the United Kingdom and what France are doing. What's driving these moves to adopt something like the DPA model in other countries? Most of the move is coming from the efforts to sanction corruption of foreign officials. So it's coming from an anti corruption push. So in the late 90s, 
countries all over the world signed on to the OECD Convention on Corruption, and they promised to do a number of things. One, they promised to make corruption illegal at home and abroad. They also promised to adopt laws that would permit liability of legal entities, basically corporate liability, for foreign corruption. And they promised to enforce their laws. And the OECD, this collection of countries, they adopted an interesting regime to make sure that this would work. So they've implemented it in stages, but part of the regime is an annual review where countries come to the OECD and they report on their level of enforcement in the year. And also, each country gets subject to basically an audit by a team of other countries that come and look and say, how are you doing? And both the UK and France were the subject of reports that basically said, you know, you're not living up to your obligations because you have companies that have been subject to sanction for foreign corruption in other countries, like the US, but you haven't sanctioned them. And part of the reason that the English or French prosecutors hadn't sanctioned them is that they couldn't under the laws in those countries at the time because the law wasn't broad enough and wasn't done right. And they wouldn't be able to get the companies to agree to settle because the only tool they had was conviction. And companies will go to the mattresses to avoid getting convicted if they're threatened with debarment, not only in, let's say, England, but they would be, they could be debarred across the EU if caught with corruption. So the OECD has been part of the spur to this, but I also think there's maybe some competition in the sense that the U.S. is handing down sanctions that are hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's going into our treasury, and other countries notice this, and often the U.S. is getting sanctions for misconduct involving a company from some other country and we're getting the fines and that country isn't, or it might be for misconduct in a country where we get the fines and the other country doesn't. So that's part of it. And then some of it may be ways of countries seeking to protect their own companies. Like they would prefer not to charge the company themselves, but if the company is going to be charged by us, they would like to be at the bargaining table, helping to have an impact on the negotiations, and they can't if they have no legal way to be part of it. So I think all of those things came together. But the OECD absolutely played a role. So you mentioned just now, and and you discussed in the paper, a number of deficiencies with the British and the French approaches to DPAs. And it looks like they're predominantly deficiencies in how those countries define corporate criminal liability how they resource corporate enforcement and the resulting incentives or disincentives those policies create for firms. We, we can get to those potential issues in a moment, but before we do, I wondered what factors are going to be necessary for effective policing of corporate misconduct? And are those factors reflected in U.S. DPA and uh, NPA practice? That's a great question. So, One of the challenges with understanding U.S. policy on corporate liability is the public debate tends to be framed around this idea that corporations are committing crimes 
as if there's some individual that's committing a crime and these terribly bad actors are allowed to settle and get a lot of leniency for the crimes that they intentionally committed. And what's lost in this way of framing it, you see it in sort of the people who are critiquing too big to jail. What's lost in this way of framing it is that large publicly held firms intentionally commit crimes in name only, right? U.S. law has the theory of U.S. law is based on a doctrine called respondeat superior that says we attribute to the firm the guilty intent and the act of any employee of the firm who's acting in the course of their work for the firm, right? So that means that even if the firm told an employee, don't go bribe this foreign official, and even if they had the best compliance program on the planet, if some salesman out in Kazakhstan bribes a foreign official, the corporation just corruptly bribed a foreign official. And under U.S. law, it's guilty of a crime. And the U.S. recognized that going after the corporation is not the best way to deter crime. We need to go after the individual because he's the one in charge of whether the crime happens. But we can't do that if we don't know the crime happened and can't get the evidence against him. It's hard for us to get evidence in Kazakhstan. So the U.S. Department of Justice over time developed a policy where it said, we're going to recognize that our focus should be on the individuals. And this policy began with the Holder Memo back in 1999, and then more recently, Yates, who was Deputy Attorney General, affirmed this. But we should focus on the individuals, and we can use the corporations basically to help us detect and to help us investigate, because they have the resources and they know everything, and we'll give them a carrot if they do it, buttressed by a stick if they don't. If they don't do it, there's a good chance we'll eventually be able to get the evidence, and then we're going to convict them. And they'll be very sorry if we do, right? But if they were to self-report and cooperate or simply cooperate, we'll give them one of these preferred forms. And the U.S. was the leader in doing this. In the early days, the U.S. didn't do this in a way that was particularly effective because it announced that it had a 10-factor balancing test to decide what form of settlement you got. So even if you self-reported and cooperated, you had no guarantee that you wouldn't get convicted, right? And companies are very reluctant to hand the prosecutors a case on a platter if they have no idea what happens to them. So the U.S. adopted a better policy. They have much more certainty now. And that's good, right? So the U.S. now basically says there's a presumption that if you self-report, cooperate, and remediate, they'll actually, and disgorge all the benefit of the crime, they won't go after you at all, right? You have to fix your compliance program, disgorge the benefit, but they won't go after you. This is a really strong incentive to self-report. And if you merely cooperate, you're very likely to get a DPA. Now, issues with the U.S. system, there are several, one of which is that the policy still leaves a lot of uncertainty in cases where the crime is really big or senior people did the crime. Because all of these presumptions that will treat you extra leniency don't apply there. We're back to the 10-factor balancing test. This doesn't make any sense. The bigger the crime, the more we care about self-reporting and cooperation. We should make the incentive stronger and clearer, right? So that's not good. 
the U.S. is also still struggling with how do we get the benefit of cooperation, which is to get the information, without basically letting the firm control the investigation. And one challenge is the U.S. still doesn't provide enough resources to white-collar enforcement. We provide more than a lot of other countries, but it's not enough. And the resources we do provide more than pay for themselves. Investigators, there's enough misconduct out there in the world that investigators would be able to bring cases that would more than cover any salaries that would be spent. And then another issue is the U.S. would benefit from adopting what's known as selective waiver, allowing companies to share all their information with prosecutors, even if they were protected by what's known as the attorney-client privilege. You know, the lawyer learned the information and it's all governed by confidentiality. Under U.S. law, if you share that information with anyone, you lose the privilege for everyone in most jurisdictions. The U.S. should adopt rule that allows it, at least for these cases, allows companies to share with prosecutors what would otherwise be privileged information without it waiving the privilege elsewhere so that the prosecutors can make sure that the company's telling them the truth about what people said to the company, because that would make cooperation more effective. So in the paper, you you have two case studies for major countries that are moving somewhat in this direction of what the U.S. does. Let's take them one by one. Could could you describe what the United Kingdom is doing and why it might not be successful or, or why its approach to DPAs might have some unintended consequences? So the U.K. adopted two very big reforms in the last few years. First, they adopted the U.K. Anti-Bribery Act that that expands corporate liability for bribery. And the reason they needed to do this is in the United Kingdom, a company cannot be convicted of most crimes unless the crime was committed by someone in the directing mind of the firm. Basically, it has to be someone who controls the company. For example, the chief executive officer. So it has to be very senior management. Well, most crimes, particularly corruption, are committed by the salesman on the ground or the person who's trying to get the government contract. It's not by senior management. So the UK had a very difficult time going after these cases because under their corporate liability rule, companies were almost never liable. The CEO rarely gets his or her hands dirty by actually committing the crime. So the UK adopted a statute that expands corporate liability and introduced the idea that corporations could be liable for failing to prevent corruption unless they could show they had an effective system for preventing corruption. So if in effect, they made companies liable for all of their employees' corruption. And that was a big move forward to enabling UK prosecutors to go after companies. And then later, they introduced deferred prosecution agreements. And they did it differently than we did in that they did it by statute, which is actually a good way to do it. And they have a system where they have judicial review, which we do in name only. So they have much more of a regular process, which is a good thing. The challenge 
to the UK system is that when Parliament adopted the statute saying you can use deferred prosecution agreements, they didn't really provide any guidance about when they thought they should be used. They just said the judge should make sure they're used in the public interest. And this could be problematic if judges have a lot of disagreement about what the public interest means. Now, in the UK, at least until recently, this hasn't been a problem because the UK adopted a practice that all of these cases went through one judge. And that one judge decided, I think correctly, that DPA should only be allowed when the company has come forward with evidence of misconduct that the prosecutors didn't already know of. So they shouldn't just get a a DPA because they're agreeing to settle. They'd better be telling the prosecutors something the prosecutors don't know about wrongdoing. So that's worked. The problem is one would hope that DPAs would enable prosecutors to go after misconduct more generally, but the UK only expanded its corporate liability rule for corruption in like one or two other areas. In almost every other area, it's still directing mind. So prosecutors have the ability to do DPAs, but why should firms do them? Because the firm knows that even if their employees committed a crime, the, the firm can't be charged because the employee was too far down. You know, unless the CEO did it, the firm has no reason to come to the table, the CEO or someone in the very top management. So this is a a reason to think that the DPAs will have an impact on corruption cases, which they have, but won't really have an impact outside of corruption cases, by and large. So that's the case of the United Kingdom. Uh, what's What's happening in France? So France adopted reforms very recently. Uh, referred to as Sapande, and they did a number of things. They expanded liability for corruption, as in the UK. And France, like the UK, has a narrow corporate criminal liability regime. It requires someone who's quite senior in the firm to have committed the crime or the firm isn't liable. France, in its reform, did not change the corporate criminal liability rule. So it's still the case that prosecutors cannot charge most companies. It did create administrative liability, broader administrative liability for corruption, with relatively low sanctions, however. But it didn't change its corporate liability rule. That's a big problem. It then introduced a form of DPA. They're different than DPAs. They're different in several ways. One, the company isn't required to admit that it did anything wrong. So that's an immediate difference. The other thing about the French system is, once again, Sapin-Deux has judicial review, and they tell the judges, do what's in the public interest. But unlike the UK, these cases weren't all channeled through a single judge who had a thoughtful idea about what to do. These cases go to whichever judge just happens to get the case. And those judges have had a wide variety of interpretations of what's in the public interest. And under the French interpretation of in the public interest, it can be in the public interest to just settle a case quickly. So some judges have allowed DPAs simply because the firm agreed to settle, even though the firm didn't cooperate or do anything to help the prosecutor. 
this doesn't make any sense. This is basically taking a firm that is doing nothing to help other than entering into the DPA and saying, we're going to give you a much lower sanction than we would have given you if we took you to trial in return for really very little. And that undermines the DPAs because firms aren't going to cooperate and provide evidence against themselves if they don't have to in order to get a DPA. So France, the authorities in charge of the corruption cases have adopted some guidelines trying to say the companies at least have to cooperate. But even then, it's much softer than the UK. They say you have to cooperate, but they don't insist that companies reveal misconduct that no one knew anything about. And they're not insisting that evidence be provided against individuals. And the French are not as concerned as the U.S. is about making sure that the individuals who did the crime get convicted. So they're not really focused on the individual liability to the same degree, which is also an issue. Do you see a possibility that the model of corporate criminal liability and enforcement that has emerged in the U.S. over the last few decades might be economically or socially suboptimal? And if there's that possibility, might divergence in other countries' approaches offer a natural experiment that the United States could learn from in its own practice of of corporate enforcement? Well, I think the U.S. can learn many things from other countries. In particular, there are serious rule of law benefits to adopting DPAs through legislation and allowing judicial review. And the U.S. can also learn from the fact that it's not good to do it by legislation and have judicial review if you just give judges a broad public interest standard, right? You have to actually give them genuine guidance and it ought to be targeted at self-reporting and genuine cooperation. I'm less confident that the U.S. has a lot to learn from the existing approach of most countries to corporate criminal enforcement because most countries are by and large not doing it, at least not against large companies. They're doing it very rarely, and they're particularly not doing it in corruption cases. So I, I would say that this is an area where we may have more to share with other countries than they have with us, although no doubt they are going after smaller companies. They just are not going after the large companies as often. And the large companies have the capacity to do the crimes that cause the large harm. At at the top of the show, you mentioned the potential that some countries have seen the U.S. reap pretty significant fines from corporate enforcements, and they might be moving in to to collect some of those, those fines themselves. With that, and maybe beyond that, what implications do you see for U.S. enforcement as other countries adopt this DPA model, particularly when it comes to multinational firms or to corruption uh, that is international in, in, in scale or scope? Well, there is more and more multinational cooperation. So there are more and more enforcement actions against large multinational firms that involve enforcement authorities from all over the world. The advantage of that happening when other countries have DPAs is that it facilitates coordination. So the U.S. can coordinate with France when both parties have the ability to do a negotiated resolution, right? Because then the French prosecutors can do it on the same time frame as the U.S. And that has promoted coordination and has avoided the problem that 
Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein talked about of piling on. You want enforcement authorities both in the U.S., for example, the Department of Justice and SEC, to coordinate, and you want the U.S. to coordinate overseas. So we figure out what should be the total sanction and then who should get what portion of it. And as other countries adopt DPAs, it's easier to coordinate because now everyone can do negotiated settlements. Where some problems are happening is where some countries are coming online to increase their enforcement but don't have DPAs. And so the prosecutors can only enforce by going to trial. And then what happens is the U.S. and, let's say, France might enter into a resolution, but some other country like Italy can't be part of that because those prosecutors have to wait and go to trial. So the company is put in a difficult position because it's settling things with the U.S. and it's admitting to misconduct, knowing that it may face a trial in several other countries where those admissions may be put in evidence against it. And that can then complicate efforts to negotiate with that company because the company may be quite reluctant to admit to everything it should admit to for fear of what happens in other countries. So the adoption of DPAs around the world could really help with this coordination problem. We're talking about deferred prosecution agreements, and that happens on uh, the tail end of, of misconduct. That's sort of the resolution of these issues. But where do whistleblower laws come into play, both in a general sense and also in, in the sense of uh, countries that are expanding their corporate enforcement tool set to include DPAs? Well, one of the primary purposes of DPAs, or at least one of the things I think DPAs should be doing is to help deter corporate misconduct by getting companies to detect and report it because people will be more afraid of committing misconduct if they're really afraid they're going to get caught. If people don't think they're going to get caught, they're not going to worry about the risk of going to jail. They figure it's not happening to them. So corporate self-reporting is very important. But of course, the company is only going to report in order to get a DPA or even better, a declination, if they think there's some risk that the government could catch them if they don't self-report, right? It's not a benefit to have a lower sanction if the alternative is you have no sanction at all because you're not going to get caught. So the government needs in the background to have a material chance that it's going to catch the firms. And prosecutors don't really have the ability to go out there and just sort of investigate everything. So they need a source of information. And the best source is whistleblowers. And it's very important that countries adopt measures that encourage people who see misconduct to report it to the government. And that means they have to feel protected if they report. So they need really good protections. But it's also important to give them bounties. And people don't like bounties because you're sort of rewarding someone for basically ratting out their coworkers. But the problem is whistleblowers incur huge costs when they report if the government proceeds against the firm, even if there are laws against retaliation. Because whistleblowers, even with those laws, often find themselves sidelined, their careers are derailed, they lose their friends, and this is very costly for them. So it's important to provide something that sort of reduces their cost. 
so that they'll come in and let us know what's going on. And a lot of the misconduct involves things that could really hurt people. You know, we think about the case against uh, GM with ignition switches that would just cut off when people were driving or Takata with its exploding airbags. We want people coming in the door when they know something like that is going on in order to tell the government. And the better the whistleblowing programs are around the world, the more effective will be the use of DPAs to get companies to self-report. And the whistleblowing programs, even in the U.S., still lag dramatically behind the DPA programs. And in other countries, other countries, by and large, don't offer bounties at all. What would you like academics and policymakers, whether here in the U.S. or abroad, to take from this paper? The most important points I would like them to take is all the pieces of the puzzle that have to go into place in order to have an effective approach to corporate crime, and that it's not enough to just give your prosecutors the ability to settle cases quickly through a DPA. You also have to give them the ability to convict corporations that do bad things by giving them a broad enough corporate liability law. You have to give them resources, and you have to give them a way to detect crime if the company doesn't come forward and that it's a whole system that has to come together, and that so far there's a lot of room for improvement all over the world. Our guest today has been Jennifer Arlen, Norma Z. Page Professor of Law at New York University School of Law, where she is the Director of the Program on Corporate Compliance and Enforcement. We've discussed her recent paper, The Potential Promise and Perils of Introducing Deferred Prosecution Agreements Outside the U.S., and I'll include a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. Jennifer, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.